We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yo, what's up, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Sharp DFS Analysis here on Rotogrinders.com. My name is Chris Gimino. I'm the projected ownership analyst here at Rotogrinders, and I'm joined by two of the sharpest analysts in the industry to go over week number seven from a Vegas and advanced analytics standpoint. Uh, we're talking football on the show. I mean, a lot of other shows are going to focus more hardcore on the DFS aspects of things. We're trying to break things down uh, and try to give you an edge analytically for the week to come. Uh, those two guys are Chris Raybon from 444.com. Chris, what's going on? Going on, Chris. Uh, happy to get back to talking to you guys. I know we're going to have a lot of sharp and interesting takes, so I'm ready to get to it. It's an interesting week. A lot of uh, lot of potential players to play in DFS. Hell yeah, a week in which we're going to smash our competition, partially due to the insights we're going to get from Warren Sharp of Sharp Football Analysis and SharpFootballStats.com. Warren, what's up? Hey, what's going on, guys? Uh, it's a busy time of year, for, I think, for all of us at this point in time. I mean, it's just fantasy heaven for those of us in the fantasy industry. And, of course, if you're in the NFL business, like the two guys opposite me on the show, I mean, at this point in time, we're getting enough data and analytics to really start digging in and trying to establish who we think these teams really are. Up to this point, we were making a lot more guesswork, a lot more speculation, but now we've got some data. But, of course, the topic of our show today, as far as the biggest strategy is concerned, is related to that. And that even though we have that data, there's still incomplete information. And a lot of people are going to make the mistake of trusting that data too much now because they think they've got it all figured out based on what they've seen in the first six weeks. And Chris, when you talk about sample sizes and you talk about you know, trying to baseline talent here in the NFL, uh, what is your advice to the people out there who are out there in the betting markets and out there in DFS as far as trying to handicap what we've seen so far from a data perspective? Well, I'll let Warren speak to more of the of how to do it in the betting market. But as far as DFS goes, I looked at what sample sizes are the most predictive for each position and what stat within, that, within those sample sizes is the most predictive for each position. And what I found was somewhat interesting. Some of it is probably uh, intuitive. Some of it maybe not. But quarterbacks – they for for in-season samples quarterbacks actually peak around six seven games so for quarterbacks where we are right now in the season uh is about as many games as we need as far as an in-season sample size so after the next week or two you want to start kind of dropping off games starting in week one and two and whatnot because it's not going to be quite as accurate and as far as what stats are the most predictive of quarterback production it's fantasy points per attempt is actually the number one and then fantasy points per game. And that just goes back to studies I've done in my DFS playbook articles for quarterback that just shows that efficiency tends to be more important than volume for a quarterback. Um, sometimes a quarterback can have a good game because of volume. We saw that with Matthew Stafford last week where he had 312 passing yards and three hundred and three TDs, but it took him 52 attempts, but usually you're going to want that efficiency. So you look at fantasy points per attempt for running backs. Um, the sample 
pretty much you can have it's, it's actually amazing but one game of a sample size for running backs um, is going to be almost at peak predictiveness if you look at uh, total yards per game so if you just look at a running back's total yards in his last game it's going to give you about a 0.33 0.34 correlation um, and that doesn't really get much higher I mean, it, it increases maybe by a couple of points as you kind of go up in sample size if you're looking at total yards per game. But um, you're going by, to, by just looking at what a running back's doing yardage-wise, um, you're going to get a, a really good indication of what he's going to do in the next game from a fantasy standpoint. Wide receivers, it's a little tougher. The correlations are not nearly as high for, as running backs for, for them. No position is really as high as running backs, but wide receiver – um, it's down the first four weeks of the season. You want to be looking mostly at targets per game. That's going to be the most predictive. And then as you get to five games and beyond, uh, the predictiveness keeps growing, but it's going to be actually fantasy points per game that's going to be the most predictive stat. And that's just because targets are, are, are so different depending on wide receivers. You have certain wide receivers like Jarvis Landry. He gets 10, 11 targets, but they're all, you know, four or five yard little dump off type, you know, quick hitting plays you know, those aren't going to be as worth as much as, let's say, a player like Julio Jones gets 10 or 11 targets. Those are going to be more downfield. So when you're actually looking at fantasy points per game, that's going to be the most predictive um, in most cases. And then for, for tight ends, it's targets per game because uh, there's not as much difference in tight end targets. Most tight ends are getting targeted uh, the same way. So the, the best tight ends from a fantasy standpoint will tend to just be the ones getting more targets. And if you're looking at defense versus position numbers, um, there's little to no correlation, even at the largest sample sizes. Um, if you're looking at unadjusted numbers, the correlation is usually um, 0.1 or under. So that's pretty, pretty, pretty weak. And what that tells you is that you want to be looking at schedule adjusted metrics. So we at four for four, we have schedule adjusted fantasy points allowed, which I can talk a little bit more about in a bit, but that's very helpful. And I know over at Warren's site, Sharp Football Stats, um, they have a bunch of schedule adjusted metrics as well. Right. And, and you, you know, we talked about this you know, a little bit before the show when you talk about, you know, touchdowns and small samples, right? Like NFL, you know, it's, it's exponential, the effect on fantasy points when a guy gets in the end zone, just like it is in the actual NFL, you know, as far as when a guy gets in, in the box. Uh, a guy like Jay Ajayi right now not really getting in the end zone all that much. I mean, you would say from your standpoint that we have to be aware of what the guy is doing, uh, both from an opportunity standpoint and from a talent standpoint outside of what his actual fantasy points have been to today, right? I mean, we can't just simply rely on, say, like an Amari Cooper, who if you looked at just his fantasy points per game leading up to this week, uh, you might not have been on him at all. Right, and Amari Cooper, uh, my bold call on the DFS MVP podcast this week was actually that Amari Cooper gets off the schneid, gets like 100 yards and a touchdown. I think he doubled that up. But, um, yeah, you have to kind of look at what's going what's gonna to happen in the, in, based on what a player's opportunity has been up to this point. He's not always going to be able to convert all his opportunities into production. Um, that's what makes fantasy um, challenging and, and, and allows you to get an edge in the first place. But uh, with a player like Ajayi, for example, you know, he's getting – he's already had, I think, two or three – three games, I believe, with 27, 28 or more touches. And he, even though he, he doesn't have a touchdown yet – he's received all, all of the team's carries inside the 10-yard line. So that just tells you that Miami has been somewhat unlucky in terms of them driving down the field and getting those high-leverage scoring opportunities. Now, I mean, part of it's not luck. Part of it's just that their offense hasn't been very good. But any team, you're going to start to expect for them to see those, those, those opportunities inside the 10 and eventually inside the 5. And when Miami gets those chances, uh, Ajayi is going to be a player – that is going to benefit similarly to Amari Cooper. I mean, Amari Cooper, I think going into the game led the Raiders in red zone targets, even though he doesn't usually hit those, he kind of led them in, in air yards and things like that. So um, there's a lot of metrics you can kind of look to opportunity wise that will be predictive. Um, even though fantasy points is still, is still important and what a player is doing is still important. Um, there's always going to be those, those, those few guys that are undervalued based on their production. And those are where the edges are. Yeah, I think that speaks to the dichotomy between balancing out the first part of your discussion, which is looking at the predictive metrics and analytics and trying to, you know, narrow down our population of potential players for the week based on that. And then also considering the variance that's inherently involved in fantasy football and, and understanding which of the players simply have been underperforming uh, their expectation given their opportunity and given their overall skill as a player long term. Now, Warren, when you talk about what you do 
on a week-to-week basis. Uh, strength of schedule has just been a, a really, really, really important part of, of my game that I've added this season. Based a lot about what you've talked about in terms of strength of schedule, you know, it's caused me to look at some situations where you'll hear all week long, uh, so-and-so team has allowed X to X position, you know, well, you know, and I'm, I'm looking at the strength of schedule and saying, well, wait a minute, they faced X, you know, th- these teams that have been inefficient against that position or don't have skillful players at that position. So talk a little bit about strength of schedule related both uh, to uh, the betting markets and also how you might interpret it as far as predicting a game's concern. I think both of them are interrelated. I think they operate in the same manner. If the, the big takeaway, I think, hopefully, that a lot of people will get from hearing this show and hearing me talk on wh- wherever you catch me is context. You have to understand the context of which stats are earned and gained. Just looking at the statistics themselves without understanding the context is going to result in problems. Um, so, for instance, sample size like Chris just spoke about, that is context. Understanding that there's only a few games that have been played and uh, where you might be able – I always look at buy low opportunities. You know, when can I buy a team or a player who has maybe been in some bad situations the last couple of weeks and might look to rebound this upcoming week? And, you know, Chris hammered that uh, Amari call uh, for Thursday night. I always like to look at those types of uh, – take things into context. And strength of schedule is a big thing because I don't really see very many other sources taking into consideration enough strength of schedule – um, just in general, you know, not necessarily specific to DFS, but just in general. Um, and that's why I've built so many different visualizations and spent a lot of time working with strength of schedule at Sharp Football Stats. Because what do we hear in the offseason? We hear so much about strength of schedule um, from, from just the talking heads and all the media thing. They like to look at what a team's record was last year in terms of their win percent. They add up all the wins and losses of a team's opponents from last year. And they say, oh, well, here's the strength of schedule for these upcoming teams for this year based upon what the teams that they'll face this year did last year. It makes absolutely no sense to, uh, you know, pigeonhole, for instance, a San Diego Chargers based upon their record, what, what it was last year, or a team that really outperformed expectations but won a lot of close games even the average is meaningless to look at what the team did last year and just try to suggest that those teams are identical to this year. So, but they spend a lot of time talking about that in the off season. What they never do is they never address it during the course of the season. They'll always throw up stats and talk about who's leading the NFL in this category or that category or what a player has done the last three weeks and how incredible they were. And you've got all these graphic packages to flash that up, but I can understand flash that information up, but at least talk verbally about the context from which those statistics were gained. And they never do that. They always fail to do that. And um, we've been doing that a lot on the show so far this year. And we're going to be doing it this week when we talk about one of the totals that I found to be possibly incorrect. So I'm big on understanding context as it relates to statistics um, and trying to, it's an art. It's not necessarily a science. It's an art trying to apply the context with what the statistics show um, it's not quite as easy as just creating an algorithm and boom, here it is. You, you have to massage things into it, such as I think some of the announcements you said pre-show, uh, other Chris, about, about uh, injuries and players who maybe weren't there for a particular week but now are there and things of that nature. You're not going to be able to just press a button on a computer and spit out a number that takes into account all of those things, which is why what we do is hard work. It takes a ton of time to try to be able to calculate predictions, whether it's sports betting or DFS, that are accurate, that will make us money, and that are also, um, you know, are, will hit at a somewhat consistent rate over time. And it's, it's not as easy as it might seem. It's not as fun as it might seem. It's a lot of hard work, but because we enjoy doing it, that's why we're willing to put in the time. Yeah, so a couple takeaways for everyone here from the strategy section of today's show. Be aware and understand the metrics that are predictive of success. We've got six weeks worth of data that we can now dive into and try to use that as a tool in our tool belt. But we also want to be aware of strength of schedule and the context in which those stats were acquired. And we also want to be aware of the physical traits and abilities of our teams. We want to be aware of the identity and schemes of our teams. Put that all together when making our predictions for the week to come and not just 
take any one individual thing in a vacuum. There is ultimately incomplete information out there, and we need to use everything at our disposal to make our predictions in the coming week. Speaking of predictions in the coming week, Warren, uh, you foreshadowed some games that you think Vegas might be off on this week, and we're going to want to hear all about that for sure. Um, Let's first talk about some of the games that are high total for the week, just for people who haven't been up on this. Maybe you've been in a cave or something. It's Atlanta versus New England. It's New Orleans versus Green Bay. There's not a lot of massive total games out there this week, once again. Uh, Low total games, we've got Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, and Minnesota. Jets, Miami, Carolina, Chicago, and Seattle versus the Giants. Uh, Previously off the board was Tampa and Buffalo, although I do see some information starting to trickle in there on our line screen. Stay tuned uh, to your uh, sharpfootballanalysis.com website for the most up-to-date lines. That's a place I like to go to take a look at these things, Warren. So it's on you now. You've got a game you think Vegas might be off on. What do you got? Well, um, once again, uh, we're sort of catching this uh, once the line has moved, but um, it moved when we put out the game. And that was the Dallas-San Francisco total. Um, this, this line was – it opened at 47 pretty much everywhere, but it took a little bit of under money at, at several spots and got down to 46-and-a-half. And that's when we got involved at the 46-and-a-half. Um, we bought some 46-and-a-half, some 47. And this thing shot up pretty quickly, uh, moved to 47, 47-and-a-half, 48. Is now currently actually through the 48 um, at many spaces now – many spots you could still get 48 i'm looking at my odd screen right now in the background there's there's still plenty of 48 out there uh but it is definitely trending more towards the 48 and a half as we're recording this here and the logic with this one there's a lot of different things and i'm going to dive into a little bit more of the specifics with one particular matchup later on in this segment where we got some graphics prepared for you guys because i think that's going to be pretty insightful um for a matchup perspective but If you look at the Cowboys, I think one of the interesting things here uh, for Dallas is everybody's talking about this Dallas team is is not right. And it's interesting because I projected them to struggle to start the season, assuming they didn't have Ezekiel Elliott. And the big reason was because they were supposed to be facing three of the top passing defenses to start the year. You know, they they have Arizona, they have Denver, and they have the Giants. And those are three difficult teams to pass the football against. But in reality, um, they had Zeke. And so I don't think anybody would sit here where we are heading into week seven and guess that with Zeke not suspended for a single game, that the Cowboys would have a losing record at this point in time. Yet here we are. They've, they've got a losing record. They're sitting at two and three. And this is a game they absolutely have to win over a team that's 0-6. Um, the question is, what's wrong with Dallas? And I think people are over-exaggerating what's wrong with their running game. Their running game, you know, if you look at the metrics – I have them third best in success rate against the third most difficult schedule of run defenses based on success rate. I have them fifth best in efficiency against the fifth most difficult schedule of defenses in efficiency. So they've been playing a difficult schedule and they've been performing pretty well. Uh, I'll talk later about how I feel they've switched up the run game to get better efficiency the last couple of games and why I think that that's going to continue based upon um, this matchup. But if you look at the, 49ers, um, they face the easiest schedule of run offenses so far this year, the easiest in the NFL. We're talking again, Chris, about context, and this is where sharp football stats comes into play. You can look and go to the schedule adjusted metrics, and you can see that they face the easiest schedule of offenses. The last three teams, though, have been considerably worse than average. They played the number 32 rated Arizona Cardinals run offense before they got AP. They played the uh, 28th rated Indianapolis Colts run offense a couple weeks ago. Last week, they played the Washington Redskins. Now, the Redskins, you might think, have a better run offense than those other two, and technically they do. They rank 21st, but the difference was they were without Rob Kelly, and they decided to start Chris Thompson. Now, Chris Thompson's like 195 pounds soaking wet as he gets out of the shower. This guy's a really light running back. He's nowhere near the physical uh, type of specimen as Ezekiel Elliott running behind the Dallas Cowboys offensive line, even though it's not the same as what it was last season. So, when you take those things into consideration, um, Chris Thompson, of course, I wasn't surprised. He only gained 2.1 yards per carry. But he caught 
four passes for over 100 yards in the receiving game. That's the other thing about this uh, San Francisco 49ers defense. They struggle to stop running backs out of the backfield catching passes. And what, the two areas that I think that the Cowboys have struggled the most, even though this offense isn't what they were last year, keep in mind, we, we, we like to say that, and that's the narrative out there on the street, but the reality is they're the only team in the NFL who's playing this week who scored 30-plus points the last two weeks, and they're the only team in the NFL who's playing this week that scored 28 points in their last three games. So, that I mean, they are scoring and being productive offensively. It just doesn't look quite as efficient or effective as it did, you know, last season. But the other thing to note here is that the two areas I feel like they've fallen short mostly from what they did last year is their explosive passing and their passes to the running back, because I think the run game is actually doing okay. Um, they are problematic throwing the ball to the running back, one of the worst in the league so far this year in terms of efficiency. But now they get to play this 49ers team who really struggles defending running backs out of the backfield. Todd Gurley caught a touchdown pass against them. I just mentioned what Chris Thompson did last week. Uh, and then you talk about explosive passes, and they'll have plenty of opportunities here. The weather is supposed to be perfect out there in California. So uh, there's a lot of things to like about the Dallas side, and I've even talked about, and I'll just gloss over this briefly, but you talk about the 49ers side implementing and inserting a new quarterback. It's very difficult starting on the road last, you know, going into the game, uh, midway through the game. I think he entered the game midway through the second quarter. I rewatched that game last night again after watching it live once already, and it's very difficult coming off the bench, even if the coach tells you be ready. This Washington Redskins defense, granted they were missing a couple pieces, is still a very good defense. And to come off the bench in D.C. at a 1 o'clock kickoff for a team from the West Coast and be inserted in there and asked to perform, it is difficult. So I wasn't all that surprised that Beathard's game, C.J. Beathard is the new quarterback, was a little bit up and down, erratic in terms of lower completion rate and things like that. I mean, he definitely looked rattled in the pocket at times with the pass rush and getting up to like game speed, you know, real NFL game speed as opposed to playing in the preseason. I think there's going to be a big change having a full week to practice and prepare for this Cowboys defense, which is significantly worse, even if Sean Lee does play, which it looks like he's going to play um, significantly worse than what the Redskins were. And what a lot of the defenses that the San Francisco 49ers have faced so far this year, they've played a brutal schedule of opposing defenses with the exception of the Indianapolis Colts. If you take the Colts out of the average, uh, they drop down to like one of the most difficult schedules of opposing defenses so far this year. The other interesting element, the last one I'll mention in this segment, is the fact that the 49ers have played three consecutive road games. What do we know about the 49ers? They like to run up-tempo offense. They like to run with very high pace offensively. We all know on the show how difficult it is to execute an up-tempo offense when you're on the road, especially with crowd noise and things of that nature. They played three consecutive road games. So I don't think that can get overlooked because it doesn't happen very much in the NFL. And coming home after three straight road games, especially one at an early kickoff on the East Coast for a West Coast team, playing uh, and inserting a backup quarterback, this team should look a lot more cohesive offensively against this Cowboys defense, which is a step down in class than what they've been accustomed to facing. So I don't think this is just going to be a one-sided affair from the Dallas Cowboys offense. I do think the San Francisco 49ers are going to be able to be productive and keep pace to an extent. Uh, and that's what it takes for a game to be mispriced from a totals perspective. It's, it's, it's not going to be just one team. I mean, I've been on couple of Cleveland Brown games uh, this season where we barely won uh, the other week again when they played Houston by scoring a late touchdown uh, Cleveland did and we lost when I took the over earlier this year against the Cincinnati Bengals and in both cases the two teams that Cleveland faced scored at will but Cleveland in one case didn't score enough I think they contributed three points against the Bengals and we lost a total by I think like less than a touchdown and in the case against the uh, the uh, the Houston Texans, they scored a very late touchdown to send the game over that total. So uh, it does take two teams to score here, and that's why I think it's important to talk a little bit about this Cowboys defense and why I think the 49ers can have some success. Fantastic points, Warren. I mean, when you take a look at that game total, it shot up all the way to 48, and you mentioned that you guys moved on that game, and it uh, looks like it's, it's actually continuing to climb maybe up to 48 and a half in some spots. And uh, that's indicative of the things that you mentioned. There's also some players in that game that we can take advantage of from a DFS perspective, um, certainly on the San Francisco side as well as the Dallas side. You had also mentioned pre-show that there was some, you know, strategy-driven talk to be had here about Aaron Rodgers and his, his effect on a game line. Maybe you could expand on that because I, 
you know, I'm interested to hear what you have to say as far as the Green Bay New Orleans game is concerned. Well, Aaron Rodgers is the most valuable player in the NFL, at least based upon historically the last several years and what we know heading into this week's game. Now, that could change depending upon the performance of Brett Hundley. But so far, you know, the drop-off in comp- – when, you, when you're looking at pricing the value of a quarterback, you have to look at who the backup is, who they're playing, and what type of game that's going to be. Um, previously in the past, you know, it used to be uh, they're going to quarterbacks that, like Scott Tolzien and guys that are much worse than Brett Hundley. Um, so I'm fascinated to see how Hundley is able to perform, and more importantly, what Mike McCarthy does offensively with Hundley in there. Because Mike McCarthy indicated uh, in a quote from his press conference the other day, I'd have to be an idiot to ask Hundley to carry the same amount of responsibility as I ask Aaron Rodgers to carry. Makes perfect sense, but a lot of times coaches go in there and they get a back, have a backup quarterback, and they're not intelligent enough to adjust the game plan. So we know that he's going to adjust the game plan. The question is in what manner and how much. Um, you know, are they going to look to run more? If so, how often? Are they going to look to throw the ball less down the field? Are they going to have Hundley run the ball a little bit more? Um, there's a lot of different variables there when you have a quarterback who's capable of running, who is athletic like Hundley is. He's not just a pocket-passing quarterback. So what exactly is going to be asked of him? Uh, but Aaron Rodgers, if you look at this line from the look-ahead, we've discussed this before on the show, your look-ahead line is the line that comes out for the game two weeks down the road. So in this case, before last week's game, before Aaron Rodgers broke his collarbone against the Vikings, Green Bay was forecasted to be favored by six and a half points at home against the Saints. When the line opened after Aaron Rodgers was injured, the real line that you can bet easily because that line, you can't bet it once the prior games start. And it's only, it's only available at a certain book out in Vegas. So it's not like widely around the internet and stuff that you can bet ahead like that. So in this case, this line opened uh, for the Saints being the favorite at three and a half to five and a half at some spots. It varied based upon when they opened and got as high as minus six for New Orleans before some Green Bay money started to show up. That's essentially a 12 and a half point swing for Aaron Rodgers moves from a six and a half point favorite to a six and a half point underdog. The other thing you have to consider with lines and spreads is that not all numbers are worth the same amount. And this might be a little bit over the heads of some people, but um, you know, you talk about the point spread, obviously three is worth the most followed by seven. And then you've got other numbers in there, like the six or the four, those type, you know, those types of numbers, but like the five is not really worth that much. The one is not really worth as much. So there's different numbers that are worth different amounts. And if you're talking about, let's say a quarterback is worth 12 and a half points, but they were going to be favored by, let's just throw an arbitrary number out there, 20 points, and that drops by 12 and a half points, and they're still favored by over a touchdown, you're not really going through a lot of key numbers there. Um, so it's not quite as impactful. But in this case, I know you're not going through the seven, but you're going through both threes, you went through both sixes before it dropped. Those are some pretty key numbers, obviously, both the fours. Um, so that's a lot of extra value that is that exists here with this with this move. It's not just 12 and a half points, it's 12 and a half points going through a bunch of these key numbers. So each player is worth a certain amount. Um, in this case, Aaron Rodgers, I'm just fascinated to see what Brett Hundley is able to do as a backup in this spot against the Saints defense. So I just wanted to outline kind of um, the value of players and then, you know, the movement through some of these key numbers when they line games. And I'm definitely not of the opinion, like some other people are out there, not in the DFS industry, but in the sports betting industry, who like to say that certain quarterbacks or certain players are worth X amount of points. And that's just standard. Like this guy is worth this many points. I'm totally against that. Um, If the Packers were playing the Cleveland Browns, let's say, or the Packers were playing uh, the New England Patriots, that quarterback is worth different amounts to different opponents. Uh, if he's playing the Browns and they don't have to do as much, then he's not worth as many points. He doesn't, he's not required to do as much. If they're playing a team like the Patriots or the Saints, potentially we'll see how the Saints do outdoors if it's raining or what the weather conditions are out there. It is going to be a different uh, requirement for that quarterback to be able to perform in order for this team to win a game. And that's the end goal. The end goal for all these teams is not to cover spreads or do anything like that. It's just to win the game. 
And to win a game against the Cleveland Browns, you have to, you don't have to do quite as much as you would to win a game against the Patriots or the Saints. And that's just a fact. So I think not considering who the opponent is and just arbitrarily suggesting here's the standard number for this player and this is how much he's worth is a problem. So that's what Vegas thinks of Hunley, folks. Uh, you can do with it that information what you will as far as your DFS rosters are concerned, but certainly not giving him anywhere close to the respect. And it's not due, quite frankly, as Aaron Rodgers was getting in this matchup at home versus the New Orleans Saints. Chris, when you take a look at games you think Vegas might be off on, uh, give us something good here. I know there's a couple of games that you sent over here. Which one are you going to land on here? Yeah, well, the first one is one that Warren kind of alluded to with the Cleveland Browns and the – uh, Tennessee Titans, and I think people probably are get, getting a little scared off by those close covers or those failures to cover in some of those Cleveland games on the over-under because it opened at, it looks like it opened at 46 and a half, and it's down to 45 and a half, 46 at most places. But I think this game is a good candidate to go over the total. If you look at the the Tennessee Titans first off, I mean, they had, you know, last week they played the Colts with Marcus Mariota back. They put up 36 points. The week before that, Matt Castle was the quarterback, so you kind of got to throw that game away. They scored only 10 points in a loss to the Dolphins. Um, they also struggled against the Texans with Mariota missing part of that game, only 14 points. But what I think is important to note is um, the two games before that, they played the number one defense in the league in terms of DVOA, and the Jaguars put up 37 points. Um, the Titans also put up 33 points against the Seattle Seahawks. We know how good that defense is. Um, week one, they were rusty, put up only 16 to the Raiders, but we kind of saw that coming after the preseason in which they were just not on the same page uh, with Mariota. Uh, but I think this Titans offense has a lot of offensive upside. Now they're going against the Cleveland Browns, who is essentially a bottom five uh, defense in, in most metrics that you're going to look at. They're, they're 25th in defensive DVOA um, and schedule adjusted fantasy points allowed to entire offenses. They are uh, 28th. So the Cleveland Browns, not a good defense. And then on the other side, you look at the Titans, and they're allowing uh, 27.3 points a game. That is uh, second worst in the NFL. And, I mean, they, they, gave up, they gave up 57 points to the Texans. They gave up uh, 27 points to the Seahawks, who are playing on the road. So th this is not a, a great defense either. Even the Colts, who are a bad offense, put up 22, which is a respectable number. So um, Cleveland – you know, they've obviously struggled on offense. They're going back to Kaiser. But um, in, in the one game where they faced a really, really bad defense, which was the Indianapolis Colts, they actually put up uh, 28 points. Now, some of that was in garbage time, but it doesn't really matter how it comes. Um, the Colts ranked 29th in DVOA on defense. So the Browns, besides that, they played the Steelers, the Ravens, and the Bengals. Um, all three of those teams are, you know, in, in the top – uh, you know, top 10 in DVOA in terms of defense. And, and they played the New York Jets. They played the Houston Texans, which are also not necessarily uh, – the Jets aren't that good, but the Texans aren't really uh, as bad by the numbers either. So um, I think both of these teams can kind of outdo their scoring projection. And I think people will kind of uh, – I don't know if people are is, is looking – judging by the Vegas line anyway, I don't know if people are quite as excited um, by this game maybe because of some things that happened. And another game where I think – um, I think the spread might be off a little bit is the Minnesota-Baltimore game. I don't think – I think it's, it's relevant for uh, DFS in terms of the Minnesota defense because um, right now five-and-a-half-point favorites. Um, but I think this is a, a game where Minnesota could win pretty handily. Um, Joe Flacco has thrown an interception in 14 of his last 16 games dating back to last season. He's thrown two interceptions in three of his last four games. Minnesota's fifth in points per game allowed at 17.2. And they're tied for fifth in the league in interceptions at seven. So I think that's a game where um, Minnesota's defense, special teams kind of in that middle tier of pricing, but I think they're really in a, in a smash spot this week. Yeah, those are, those are two great games and, and points to make here, both from the positive side uh, with the Cleveland-Tennessee game. A couple of guys in, in that game that I think we should be looking at for DFS purposes. You'll hear that talked about around the industry this week. You know, namely, uh, you know, maybe some value opening up here at running back, depending on the news we get. Uh, in that situation. But of course, the wide receivers also very much in play against that Cleveland defense. Ultimately, a game, I think, to target uh, with your tournament lineups for sure. And Chris, you also mentioned a game we might not uh, want to be uh, as interested in from a Baltimore offensive side, but maybe from the Minnesota defensive side. So uh, relevant for your DFS purposes for sure. Time to start talking offensive analytics, Warren. 
you, you talked about this game a little bit earlier. Give us the breakdown. What's going on uh, with this run game for Dallas? Yeah, so we've got um, we've got a couple of graphics that we can flash up there. If you're able to to flash up the first one that looks at Todd Gurley and Chris Carson against this San Francisco run defense. Um, if, if you're capable of, of bringing that one up now, let's let's bring that one up. Uh, this graphic is is interesting because what I want you to note, um, if you're able to make this out at home, these are from SharpFootballStats.com, and this is directional run production. And so what it does is I looked at you know the run offenses that the 49ers have faced, and I mentioned they really haven't faced very many good rushing offenses so far this year, uh, but. Two of the running backs who did better against them, or, or let me not say better, two of the running backs who are more akin to a star running back like Ezekiel Elliott in the Dallas Cowboys rushing offense would be Todd Gurley and Chris Carson to different extents, different comparisons. But one of the things that you can clearly see from these graphics that both of these players had in common was their productivity running behind the left tackle and outside to the edge of the left side of the offensive line. Both of these guys averaged between 5.5 and 6 yards per carry when they ran behind their left tackle and over 9 yards per carry when they ran outside to the left end. Considerably better than what they did when they ran up to the center and to the right side of the offensive line. So both these teams, totally different offenses, but both of them had a lot more success running to that direction. Now, the, uh, the Rams ran it primarily up the middle, uh, but you can see that using the directional frequency to the bottom left of each of these respective graphics, you could see that the Seattle Seahawks ran it a little bit more to that side. They ran it less under center. So keep this in the back of your mind as we flash up the next graphic where we're looking at Ezekiel Elliott's directional rushing production so far this year. And I decided to break this out into two segments because there was a somewhat of a philosophical shift in my opinion um, that occurred with the run game of the Dallas Cowboys that really wasn't talked about that I recall, and maybe some Dallas Cowboys insiders or guys more familiar with the team were aware of a desire for the offense to start to do this to help jumpstart the run game, but I have not heard anything publicly. And that is, don't obviously, the first thing that you can take away, the top three, uh, top graphic is Ezekiel Elliott's first three games. The bottom graphic is his last two games. And the thing that you should take away from the top one uh, and the bottom one is that running to behind the outside left end is very productive for the Dallas Cowboys to begin with. That's the best direction that they run on the field. So they're already strong at attacking a weakness of the San Francisco defense. But the thing that I want you to pay closer attention to is on the directional frequency in the first three games, notice how there were 23 runs that were made behind center, 23 runs. Now, that ended up uh, amassing, if you look at like the overall percentages, uh, those, that was, I think, um, 42%, 23 out of 55 runs were up the center, right behind the quarterback, right behind the center. And you could see they only averaged 3.5 yards per carry, very unproductive in that direction. They decided the last two games that they played to spread that out tremendously. Instead of going right under the center, 42% of the time. They only went there about half that, about 24% of the time. And they spread it out. If you look at the bottom most, uh, leftmost graphic, you could see that only 12 runs were under this, were behind the center, but so much me, uh, more rushing to either side of the center as opposed to focused at that one position. And the team has been more productive running the ball offensively as a result. And I think because they've made that shift, we are going to see a little bit more of the same. Hopefully they've been studying this as well. And they studied some of the metrics that I just showed you with regard to the San Francisco weakness. But if they were able to do that and saw some of the successes that these other running backs had, I think that we could see Ezekiel Elliott have a good game if they run the ball enough to the left side of the offensive formation behind the left tackle or outside uh, the left end. So that is an area that I think Ezekiel Elliott can stand to have a lot of success in this matchup. Um, especially if people have this recency bias and think, well, San Francisco um, just held the starting running back for the Washington Redskins to 2.1 yards per carry. I think we're going to see something totally different in this matchup. I think Zeke's going to have a good 
running performance. I think also because of how San Francisco struggles to defend the passers out of running backs out of the backfield, he's going to have a good day as a receiver. And lastly, Armstead is no longer playing. He broke his hand, I think. He's been put on the injured reserve for the 49ers. That's a big loss to their defense. He was one of their best. He's, he plays the edge, and he was one of their best run stoppers at the edge position. So he's no longer there for this matchup. He hurt himself last week. He made a couple of big plays in the game last week against the Redskins before he went out. So without him in there, I think that's an even bigger edge to the Dallas Cowboys, and I think that they've Worked a little bit more on the run game over the bye week. I'm intrigued to see if they come out and take advantage of this weakness that the 49ers run defense has. Chris, I'm, I'm not that smart. Certainly not as smart as Warren, but he's telling us this game has a good chance to go over the total. He's telling us that there's some metrics we can rely on that suggest the Cowboys are going to improve in the run game. I think I'm pretty sure I know what I want to do with Ezekiel Elliott this week. Hopefully our listeners and viewers uh, can take that the same way I do. I, I just think that – I'm completely convinced based on what Warren just said that he's going to have a good game. And, uh, I, I don't, you know, there's some other factors at play here, of course, as well. But just everything's adding up for Zeke here this week. Now, you've got a spot here in Green Bay that you think might make sense for us as well. Uh, when I take a look at uh, the secondary uh, in Green Bay, I, I have some concerns for their ability to limit opposing pass offenses. What do you think? Yeah, um, I actually this week created – uh, if you guys could bring up the graphic, uh, something called funnel ratings, which essentially what I did was I looked at schedule adjusted fantasy points allowed, and I essentially created funnel ratings for different positions. So I created a pass funnel rating, and that's essentially, you know, I add up quarterback and running back schedule adjusted fantasy points allowed and look at the teams that give up the most to the least percentage of those points to either the quarterback or the running back, the more points you give up to the quarterback versus the running back, that's more of a pass funnel. Um, I, then I did the same thing for tight end funnel. And then that's where I, I added up the schedule adjusted points allowed uh, for a defense for wide receivers and tight ends. And then looked at which defenses are giving up the highest percentage for tight ends. Those would be tight end funnels on the opposite end of the spectrum would be uh, wide receiver funnels. So the green Bay Packers, they are ranked uh, 30th in tight end funnel, which means they're funneling the ball to the wide receivers at the third highest rate in the league in terms of production allowed. And the reason I like to look at schedule adjusted fantasy production allowed versus just looking at targets or just looking at efficiency is because um, sometimes there can be situations where, especially early in the season, where a team maybe isn't giving up many targets, but when they do, they're, they're, they're highly efficient. And that's not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily tell the whole story. It could really mean that, you know, a team is generally doing a good job at limiting uh, targets. And then, you know, a quarterback's only throwing to that position the few times when they're really open. And so there's good efficiency, even though um, the team is, the defense is pretty good overall. So I like to look at the actual production schedule adjustment production allowed I think that gives you the best sense of where a defense is really funneling the action because you have those a lot of times especially with tight ends there are only so many good tight ends in the league so those numbers can really get thrown off um, and Green Bay again they're uh, third most uh, third heaviest wide receiver funnel they're allowing the, the fifth most tar percentage of targets uh, per game to the wide receiver position so the numbers back it up there 62 percent um, and then Michael Thomas you know we always talk about the Saints and them struggling on the road or whatnot, or a lot of their players. And well, that might be true to a certain extent. Um, Michael Thomas is the rare saint that in his career, he's actually been more productive on the road. Um, and that's largely because he gets targeted a little more uh, 9.1 targets in his career on the road compared to 7.3 per game at home. Thomas also uh, positively correlated with Mark Ingram. So I don't think if anyone's playing Ingram, I know he'll probably be chalky this week um, for good reason. I don't think you should uh, necessarily shy away from playing Thomas uh, both in your overall portfolio or in, even in the same lineup uh, just because you have Ingram in there. Um, I think Thomas is in a really good spot. Green Bay 22nd in the league in schedule in a DVOA versus number one wide receivers. Thomas has led the uh, New Orleans Saints in targets in every game. He's kind of the new Jordy Nelson in a way um, just in terms of what him and Breeze can do uh, inside the 10 yard line. I believe he's eight of 13 in career um, convert conversions of touchdowns um, from targets inside the 10 yard line. So I think there's a lot to like about Michael Thomas this week against the Green Bay defense, who, as you alluded to, Chris, just struggling at the cornerback position. Their best corner really is not even a corner. It's Morgan Burnett. He's a converted safety. He plays in the slot 
Um, but he might not even play this week. I don't, I'm not sure exactly what his injury status is. But um, the important thing to note is that all of the Green Bay perimeter corners are ranked uh, 60th or below by PFF. You have Josh Hawkins, Demarius Randall, um, Kevin King. A bunch of those guys are banged up anyway in terms of King and Randall. So it's just not really not Green Bay doesn't really have the personnel to match up to Thomas in this game. Yeah, uh, I see it the same way. So great points there on Michael Thomas and the New Orleans St. Pass offense on the road. Historically struggle, but this could be a spot where uh, we have to throw out some of those archetypes and really just focus on the matchup and what we see uh, from a team, you know, from a matchup perspective this week. Uh, now, I'm going to throw it back to you, Chris, because Warren talked about the Dallas-San Francisco game a lot and how he likes Zeke Elliott from the Dallas perspective. Uh, but we know that San Francisco is, you know, they're not just going to open the floodgates and let everyone in Dallas come through. Any concerns from a defensive side here? Yeah, I think that uh, if you bring that graphic back up with the funnel ratings, you can see that San Francisco is actually ranked 31st in tight end funnel rating. So they are second to last. They are funneling the, the ball to the wide receiver position. And a big reason why is strong safety Jaquesky Tart. He is very good at covering tight ends. He's fourth in the league in terms of pro football focuses grades uh, cover in coverage rating uh, for the uh, safety position. And he's allowing just 5.2 yards per target on the season. And what that's resulted in is that San Francisco is really giving up nothing to the tight end position. Um, even after, you're, after you adjust for strength of schedule, they rank number three in terms of four for four schedule adjusted fantasy points allowed to the tight end position, only 6.7 PPR points per game allowed to tight ends total um, for San Francisco. So I think this is a game where it's a very attractive game from a DFS perspective because it's kind of, we kind of know where the ball is going to go, where the production is going to go. It's going to go to Zeke. It's going to go to Dak. It's going to go to Dez. And then on the San Francisco side, you have this bad Dallas defense um, and you have a, a cheap quarterback, you have a cheap tight end in George Kittle, um, and you have a, a high-volume wide receiver that's also pretty affordable in Pierre Garçon. So um, just, just a pretty attractive game. Um, but, but the one guy I think you're not going to really see much production from in this game is Jason Witten. Yeah, uh, Tart definitely having an excellent season here. Uh, Warren, this show, we're hammering home a couple of different points, and we're going to hammer home yet another one that Chris brought up earlier now, the game total in the Baltimore-Minnesota game, it was 38 and a half uh, at the time uh, that we're doing this show. And when you take a look at the Ravens potentially getting back uh, Brandon Williams, that's certainly going to be a downgrade if, if that's the case for the Vikings uh, run game. But not as many people may be aware of what's going on the other side of the ball. Can you talk about the Vikings run D a little bit? Um, yeah, I think definitely – this game is interesting because a lot of people have this perception, you know, from what they've done in the past that the, the Ravens are this pass heavy team. Cause that's what they were, you know, in, in, in prior years. But if you look at them in one score games, um, they're actually the fourth most run heavy team in the league so far this season. Uh, they've been trying to run the ball more because Joe Flacco is absolutely terrible throwing the ball. I mean, it's actually pathetic that this guy is commanding the highest percent, uh, the highest percentage of the salary cap, the most salary cap dollars, of any player in the NFL this year. Um, everybody talks about, uh, you know, the owner and the GM of the Baltimore Ravens, Ozzie Newsom, uh, the GM being such uh, a whiz, but he definitely whizzed the wrong way on the Joe Flacco <laughs> extension in this one because uh, I don't see why they signed him to that extension. In the, I mean, I get it. There's a lot of pressure. They just won the Super Bowl, so you got to give him some money and, and whatever. I mean, I would have tried to negotiate it differently. I'm sure they did. But then to sign him to additional extensions after that to pay him more guaranteed money. Um, and then for John Harbaugh to continue to praise him in the media and never really want to say a negative word about his quarterback, always like massaging the ego there. Uh, it's just something fishy going on with, with the way that they view Joe Flacco in Baltimore. But to return back to the run game here, um, they have been trying to run the ball a lot more. And the Vikings are one of the most stout run defenses in the NFL. They rank fifth overall in run defensive efficiency. That comes against the eighth most difficult schedule of run defenses. They rank fourth in success rate. And the Baltimore Ravens are like middle of the pack um, in terms of their overall efficiency. 
And if Minnesota, obviously, if Minnesota is able to get a little bit of production offensively against that defense, then the Baltimore Ravens are going to have to throw the ball a little bit more. So I'm, I'm extremely down on the run game potential of the Baltimore Ravens in a spot. I just think it's a, it's a bad recipe. Going on the road in Minnesota, you want to try to run the ball. You don't want Joe Flacco to screw things up offensively for you. But I don't think that their production is going to be enough for them to sustain that. The only way possible is if their defense gets some turnovers and they're able to keep this game really close on the scoreboard, then they could stick with very inefficient runs. And in which case, I think that this game would definitely go well under the, the posted total due to a lower scoring game. Now, I was a little frustrated that this game didn't reach the 40-point mark so that we could take the first half under. Uh, but we like to play numbers, not necessarily just go blindly. And so we're not going to go under on 30, uh, sorry, 29 and a, sorry, 19 and a half or 19 in the first half uh, when, our, when our number was 20. So we didn't get that. I do think it's going to be a, a closer scoring game, a lower scoring game. Uh, but I just don't think that the Baltimore Ravens offense is going to be productive running the football. So the fact that they run it the fourth most often in the league in one score games, I think that sets up for them having a lot of inefficiency on the road overall offensively in Minnesota. As if we didn't have enough reasons to kind of stay away from that game, I'll certainly take that advice and minimize my exposure there. Chris, uh, it's time to talk about the chalk this week. Um, and we're, we're hammering home points, as I mentioned. We're looking at – couple of guys here from the chalk perspective that I want you to talk about. Uh, the first one is a guy I'm familiar with being a, a long-suffering Bills fan, Robert Woods. Now, uh, I, I'm looking at him, and I have, I'm having a hard time trusting him. I see the same things that a lot of, a lot of people are seeing out there with this matchup as, as far as the Arizona secondary is concerned. I'm seeing the efficiency of the Rams' pass offense this year, and, 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 I, and I get it. But, you know, my, you know, so far I've been gravitating more towards a guy like Cup, even though he's not on the field nearly as much and probably won't get the kind of target volume that Woods will get just because I've, I've been, you know, just burned so badly by Woods. Talk me into this. What's going on with Robert Woods? Why can I trust him this week? Well, I think Robert Woods is going to have the best matchup in that secondary and pretty much one of the best matchups you can have for a receiver. He's going to be going against Tremont Williams, who's 34 years old. Justin Bethel has been benched. Of course, Bethel is the cornerback who starts on the perimeter opposite Patrick Peterson, so he gets just relentlessly targeted. This season, Patrick Peterson's been targeted only 20 times through six games, about only seven catches. Just remarkable. Um, little over a catch a game. Meanwhile, Justin Bethel been targeted 42 times. So now you're going to bring in a 34-year-old who graded you know, lower than 100th in PFF's cornerback grades. Last season, you know, he was on the bench for a reason and behind Bethel. You know, now they have no choice but to turn to him after Bethel just keeps getting burned. Um, and I think, you know, Woods over his last four games quietly, you know, averaging 65 yards a game, seven targets a game. You know, that, that's, that's pretty good production for, for the salary which you're getting Woods at, you know, under 6K on Fandu, uh, around 4K on DraftKings. Um, but I think Cooper Cup is a, a solid play as well. Um, the one thing about Cup is he's getting 42.9%. Uh, of the uh, St. Louis, I mean, excuse me, the Los Angeles Rams targets inside the 10-yard line. We know how valuable those can be. So he's the preferred target down there. You're going to probably see Patrick Peterson. Looks like his quad is good enough to play. You're going to see him on Sammy Watkins all day. And Sean McVay is not stupid. He knows how to kind of, you know, exploit defensive weaknesses. And he's going to probably draw up a lot of plays for Robert Woods, draw up a lot of plays for uh, Cooper Cup. So I think both of those guys are in good spots this week. All right, maybe I'll do it. You know, I mean, you make a great point here with Tremont Williams. Uh, you know, if, if, if he's the guy that goes instead of Bethel, I have zero confidence in that particular switch. So uh, great points there on Robert Woods. Now, you, you also mentioned Delaney Walker here, uh, a play I have a much easier time uh, getting on board with here against Cleveland and their success against the tight end thus far. Talk about that. Yeah, so Walker's interesting. Um, you know, when the week kind of started – you know, kind of doing the research after last week's games, you kind of look at Cleveland versus tight end. You know, they ranked 32nd in schedule adjusted fantasy points allowed to the tight end position, just getting absolutely flamed um, by the position. It, it was a little shaky last week because of Ryan Griffin. Um, I think he got three passes for 52 yards. He led the team in targets, but um, he also got a two-point conversion, but then the other tight end got a couple of catches. So the numbers still were bad overall for Cleveland, but it was a little more uh, split up. And this week, I think Walker, um, I actually like him as a tournament play. Um, I think he, he's viable in cash games, but it's a little risky because 
He actually played 63% of the snaps last week against the Colts while John U. Smith, the rookie, played 61% of the snaps. Now Walker ran 22 routes. Smith only ran eight. So Walker's still getting um, the high value usage in terms of uh, fantasy, but, you know, little risky with him not playing as many snaps as we would probably like. But this is just an absolute smash spot. Um, anytime you have, especially a receiving tight end um, going against Cleveland, a tight end who's really good at catching the ball, um, has been his team's leading pass catcher in the past in Delaney Walker. Um, I think this is a really good spot for him. I wonder if his ownership maybe will be a little bit lower than it would be normally given the matchup, just because I think a lot of people want to play Eric Decker um, after his seven catch game last week. You know, Eric Decker is a really cheap option, actually cheaper than Walker um, pretty much across the industry. But um, Cleveland, you know, they, they, they faced uh, Jesse James, Ben Watson, Tyler Croft, um, Ryan Griffin, you know, the only really good and, and I, you know, good is, you know, kind of relative term, but I mean, the best tight end they've, Praised is essentially Austin Safarian Jenkins, um, yet they're 32nd dead last in schedule just in fantasy points allowed to the tight end position. So I think this is a matchup you want to attack, whether it be Walker. I mean, if you're in a maybe a, a 1 p.m. only or something like that, I think even Smith um, is an interesting uh, dart throw. Uh, Chris talked about this game as a game he likes this week. He's talking about a player he likes in this game. I don't need to put two and two together for you people out there. Let's talk to Warren about who he thinks is going to go off here or at least have a favorable situation when it comes to the chalk. Warren, where are you looking? I'm looking at Michelle McCoy um, hosting the Tampa Bay Buccaneers um, in Buffalo. You know, for some time, sometimes I think that um, kind of out of sight, out of mind for a lot of players. And the last time that we saw uh, the Sean McCoy was all the way back in week five, because he didn't play last week. Um, we saw a, a very lower scoring game in, Cincinnati well actually uh, that was yeah that was in Cincinnati it was rainy and uh, Cincinnati's run defense is a lot better than what they were to start the year on the overall course of the season they ranked seventh most efficient against the run but like I said with Vontaze Perfect now who missed the first three weeks that is a better run defense and if you look at what they did I mean the, the prior weeks they've gone up against Carolina and Denver who both went rank inside the top six in terms of run defensive efficiency. So they played some very brutal schedule in the last four games. Three of the four games have been against teams ranking uh, top seven overall on the season in terms of run defense. And then you look at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And while Tampa Bay ranks, you know, 14th overall in run defensive efficiency, once again, we return back to the word, the buzzword of context. They've played the second easiest schedule of opposing run offenses. If you look at who they just played last week, they played, you know, the, the uh, Arizona Cardinals. And we're talking about Adrian Peterson uh, completely smashed them. 5.2 yards per carry, two touchdowns, 58% success rate on his runs. The week before that, they played uh, Mike Gillisley from the Patriots. He had, again, 58% success rate on his runs. He only had seven of them, uh, but sorry, he had 12 of them, but uh, an average 4.3 yards per carry. But overall, very poor performance. So they really haven't played very uh, strong opposing running offenses apart from uh, the Patriots and the game against the Bears much earlier in the season when they were much healthier defensively as well. Um, so I think that this is a really good spot for the Sean McCoy at home uh, to perform well against a team that I think they said Jameis Winston is going to start. But how well is Jameis Winston going to play? He could throw some interceptions, could have some problems from that perspective, uh, which would set up even better field position for the uh, the Buffalo Bills here. So I like LaShawn McCoy in this spot. Yeah, and I think that's a popular take out there in the DFS world this week. And and, and I'm on board with it myself. You know, like I mentioned, Bills fan, uh, noticed the same things that you have as far as who they've played so far. And talked, hammered home the point earlier about recognizing – the situation, talent, and opportunity of a player and not just his production so far. I think that uh, a lot of people are comfortable with what LaShawn McCoy has done thus far from an opportunity standpoint, and we'll be rolling him out in DFS contests. I will probably be doing the same. Uh, Chris, when you talk about guys who are not so popular, maybe under the radar, this week, who do you got? Yeah, uh, I'll get to it in a second. I just wanted to one more point about McCoy. I think it bodes well because um, we know that Adrian Peterson, a big reason that he tends to struggle um, over these last couple of years is because 
he's not a good shotgun runner. And so, you know, he went to Minnesota. He's taken a lot of those snaps under the center, and he gashed them that way. And McCoy, kind of the same thing. He's kind of struggled um, under the center. It's, it's, it's actually the opposite for him. Um, he struggled to run under the center this year. That's part of the problem in addition to playing a bunch of strong run defenses. So I think it bodes well that um, the Bucks gave up a lot of production to a running back in, in a scheme where they were running under center last week. Um, so, I, you know, I think that maybe – will help jumpstart McCoy. But as far as somebody uh, at low ownership that I think will probably go a little overlooked, um, I'm going with actually a defense special teams, and that's the Jaguars. And I think they'll be overlooked because they're so expensive and there are a lot of cheaper options uh, that you can play this week. There are the Dolphins, you know, home favorite against the Jets. You got the Bills against that banged up Winston, uh, you know, at a pretty good price. You got the Vikings, of course, which are going to probably be chalky against Joe Flacco as a home favorite. Um, you even got the Saints, you know, going against a quarterback. You got a bunch of two teams going against uh, quarterbacks making their first starts. It's just a uh, you got the Steelers going against Andy Dalton in a, in a low total game as a home favorite. So a lot of ways you can go at defense where a lot of people probably won't be trying to pay up. And I think the Jags defense is in an absolute uh, smash spot this week. They lead the league in points per game amongst defense special teams, 14 point seven on FanDuel, 14.5 on DraftKings. And on the flip side of that, they have the best possible matchup. The Colts rank dead last in defensive special team schedule adjusted fantasy points allowed. They're giving up 13.7 per game. So, I mean, you literally have the Jaguars averaging almost 15 points and the Colts giving up schedule adjusted almost 14. So, I mean, that's right there. That's just, you hardly ever see that where it just matches up that perfectly. And then you look at even the, the more advanced metrics when you take fantasy points out of it, you know, Jacksonville is the number one defense in uh, DVOA and the Colts are the number 32 offense in DVOA. So, I mean, this is a spot where, sure, there's a bunch of good defenses. They're all good value. They're all probably get you eight to 10 points but I mean this Jags defense it almost seems like the floor is 13 to 14 um, and I think they have that 20 point upside and, and I had to mention it because um, I, I think I mentioned the Saints last week and they ended up outscoring every um, every player in fantasy I also recommended the Saints as a cash game play in my four for four write-up um, so I gotta go gotta go back to the well and give these people um, these defensive goods you know don't overlook the Jags defense this week um, in, a, in a just an amazing matchup against the Colts. I'm I'm pretty sure I couldn't love that take anymore. Warren, have you got a take that I can love that much? Because we're looking for guys off the radar here. We're trying to win in these big DFS tournaments. You know, where can we go that people maybe aren't expecting to see value? Yeah, that that's exactly where I was thinking with uh with this next one. It's it's got a lot of variance to it, um, but it might be worth looking at a little bit. Um you know the New York Jets. Uh, they're not a they're not a sexy team. They're not a team that's really going to excite very much. But there is one player on the Jets who's getting a ton of hype, um, and that's Austin Safarian Jenkins, who everybody's looking to roster. Everybody's looking to jam a man. He's been targeted so much, and and he's performing extremely well uh, for them. One of the reasons why they're going to need to pass the ball, in my opinion, um, is because if you look at this Miami Dolphins, <coughs> excuse me, this Miami Dolphins run defense it's extremely stout uh they've gone up against ridiculously good rushing offenses the last three weeks the saints the titans the falcons i mean tremendous rushing offenses the jets right now rank 27th in rush offensive efficiency so it's not even going to be comparison they're going to the dolphins have been doing a good job at holding some of those run games in check they're going to have a really easy time in my opinion holding this Jets run def run offense in check. That means the Jets are going to have to pass the ball more. And my take is that while everybody's rushing to go after the tight end, I would look a little bit more towards the Dolphins wide receivers. Um, you've got a couple of them there. It's, it's hard for me to really single one of the guys out that I would like more, Jermaine Curse or, uh, or Anderson. But you look at what the Miami Dolphins defense has done against tight ends. They rank 11th best at, at success rate, only allowing 49% to tight ends. And in terms of yardage, average yardage, they rank fifth best, only allowing 5.9 yards per attempt to tight ends. But to wide receivers, they rank 30th, allowing 9.2 yards per attempt to wide receivers. And they rank 31st, allowing a 61% success rate to wide receivers. They're very good against defending running back passes as well. 
uh, top 10 in both success rate and yards per attempt. So I'm more so looking to maybe follow, I'm not sure who I've, I'll settle on, but Robbie Anderson or Jermaine Curse as a wide receiver that probably not many people are going to look at playing um, on the road in Miami. But I think that there may be, you know, if people are looking, like I said, if people are looking to target a player in the passing game in this spot, they're probably going to go after ASJ. And I think you could try to pivot away from that to look to a wide receiver. Yeah. Josh McCown has been pretty good, pretty methodical out there. Uh, getting the ball uh, to his weapons uh, looks a lot better than I think just about everyone would have thought. So uh, there could be some value here with these Jets wide receivers. You are correct. Uh, folks, that's going to do it for our show today. Uh, I want to say thanks again to Chris Raybon, Senior DFS Editor, 444.com. Check out their content. Uh, check out Warren Sharp's information, sharpfootballstats.com, sharpfootballanalysis.com, and, of course, uh, Roto-Grinders Premium. Get all our stuff in Lineup HQ, put it all together, beat some people's asses in DFS this weekend. That's going to do it for the show. For Warren, for Chris, I'm Chris Jamino. We'll be back again in week number eight.